Philippians chapter 1, and you can find verse 27 as you're opening to that text. One way to describe what we're going to do together this morning could be to say that we're taking a certain picture from 1 John and thinking about how the life of a Christian is lived in light of it. There's so many connections between some of what John describes to us in that first epistle of his and what Paul says to us here in Philippians 1. We're told these things, 1 John 2, 8 and 17, we're told that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. We're told that this world is passing away along with its desires, but the one who does the will of God, that one lives forever. What does that do to us as we live in this world? When we come to the end of the first chapter of Philippians this morning, and one thing that means is that we bump up here against what seems to me to be a fairly misleading chapter break between chapter 1 and chapter 2. If I had my way, chapter 2 would begin this morning. This would be the beginning of what comes after. Somebody else made those decisions. Um, many have recognized our, our passage this morning marks the start, not just of a new section now in Philippians, but of what is quite obviously the central, the most important section of this letter. And it goes from here, from 127, all the way to the end of chapter 2. And the way that he's going to begin this, we'll hear in just a moment as we read, is with some obvious eagerness. We hear eagerness in his voice. We hear urgency. One commentator, Alec Motier, describes verse 27 in light of what we've been seeing up to this point. He describes it as an abrupt outburst by which Paul jumps into what is his main purpose in writing this letter. I mean, think of what we've seen so far. He's been, he's been greeting them. He's been updating them on his circumstances. Last week, he shared his frame of mind with them. Uh, so we heard his peace and his confidence in Christ. He's comforting them and encouraging them about how he's seeing his present circumstances. But now, suddenly in verse 27, without warning or introduction, he turns his attention onto them. And he does it in order to fix their minds on a singular idea. And the first word we'll read is the word only. And he does it without any gradual introduction. Uh, the focus is upon this word that we're going to see, conduct. He's drawing attention to their conduct, to their manner of life. Uh, and he's going to do that beginning this week in a number of ways. He's going to speak to and encourage a particular manner of living that looks like several different things. There will be, I think, by the time we're finished with this section, there will be five parts of this, five ways that he describes this. And yet they're all simply manifestations of a single thing. Paul says, only, only one thing do you need to be concerned about. I think we hear it best in light of last week's passage coming right before it. What, what did he just say to them and to us? He said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He said, I'm hard pressed in both directions, yet I think God is intending for me to remain and to come and see you again. 
So in that way, you have nothing to fear. Put, put concern for me out of your mind. There is one thing that should be occupying your mind and your concerns. And so let's begin this morning by hearing how he starts this week to complete and to expand upon that thought. We'll read together verses 27 to 30. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, an, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We start in verse 27 with the overarching declaration that Paul is telling them they should be fixing their minds upon. And it's significant the way that he phrases this. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now when he talks about, when he says what we read there as, let your manner of life, those five words, that the ESV is translating a single word in what Paul wrote to us. That's a word, this command that he's giving to them here. It's a word that by his time had come to be used to describe the general concept of just conducting oneself in a certain way, uh, living in a certain way. So it's good that we translate it as, uh, let your manner of life be a certain thing. But there was a narrower meaning of the word. That's often the case, that originally a word means a particular thing, and then as time goes on, its use is broadened out into a more general way. That's the case with this word. But we know for a fact that by the time Paul is writing this, the original sense still rings in the ear so that it can be used to point to that. And the narrower meaning of this word had to do with the specific meaning of being a citizen of a certain place, living out the reality of one's citizenship. And it seems fairly obvious that Paul is using that term here deliberately because of who he's speaking to. This verb only shows up twice in the New Testament. It's not a common word to find. And he speaks this way as he's writing to the Philippians. Philippi was a city that was famous in its time because they were a formally recognized Roman colony. This was a huge deal. They had colonial status. It's one of the most coveted prizes of the Roman Empire for a city. It comes with a number of benefits to be recognized and to exist in this way. And it's a reality that sets you apart in a number of ways, which means that the Philippians know all about what it's like to be proud of a lofty citizenship, to think it something that is, that is full of honor and ought to be reflected as such. 
Now notice, Paul doesn't belabor any point here. He just uses the term. He just uses it. I imagine that probably when he was with them before, he had spent time making the point that he just touches on here, drawing connections from their Roman citizenship in this way and its honor, drawing connections from that to the realities of their heavenly citizenship now that they have been brought into Christ and belong to his kingdom and all of the honor that comes with that and, how, and the, the newness of their identity in this way. Paul points to this reality to draw their attention to the notion that one's citizenship is something one should be proud of and should care how uh, we present ourselves under it. But make no mistake, the citizenship he's describing here as he's calling them to this idea is their heavenly citizenship. When he says something, you're like, live out your citizenship in a worthy way. He's talking about their citizenship in God's kingdom. It's not about the obligations that exist upon them as Roman citizens. It's about the obligations upon them as heavenly citizens. That's something that actually even distinguishes them from their fellow Philippians, doesn't it, in their own city. He'll speak of it again at the end of his letter as he's starting to draw things to a close. In chapter 3, verse 20, he'll, he'll talk about people whose end is destruction. He speaks of them with tears. And by contrast, he'll say, but our citizenship, it's another form of this same word, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we are waiting for a Savior. He begins here in our text by telling them, live out your lives very conscious of the fact that you are not of this world. And as he commands them concerning this, concerning, in a way that is focusing on the way that they live, the manner of life, as pertains to their heavenly citizenship. As he commands them about this, the one priority he places before them is this, verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's the criteria. This is what he cares about. This is what he says should occupy their thinking. Stop worrying about me and how I'm doing. I'm fine. The Lord has me. He will, be used, he will, he, he will use me to bring glory to his name, whether by life or by death. What you need to be concerned about and fixated on is that you would be living your life in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's something to hear him say. I mean, it immediately creates the reality of categories in our thinking. There is a way, he says, to live that is not worthy of the gospel. And there is a way to live that is worthy of it. It's a great example of a phrase we might sometimes think we're not allowed to say. And this is just another way that a regular diet of Scripture is so healthy for us because we know God's Word is pure and true, and as we read it, we, we develop its vocabulary. We know how we ought to speak about things by how we hear the Bible speak about those things. Can you imagine someone saying something like this. Maybe you've thought this or spoken this way. I can tell you I've thought this way at points in my past. Someone can make a very understandable comment to this effect. Well, I mean, I, I could never live a life that is worthy of the gospel because the gospel deserves a perfect life, and I will never be perfect 
in this life. Therefore, I could never live a life worthy of the gospel. There's a certain logic there that we understand, don't we? And there's something true in, in the reasoning when we're thinking about the reality of, of ongoing and dwelling sin in our lives. Some of those things may be true, but then we come to verse 27 and we hear Paul say, you must be fixated on this notion of living your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. My friend, if you call yourself a Christian this morning, do you understand that there is, even in a broad sense, there is a way to live on this planet that is worthy of the gospel? And that that therefore means it is possible for you to be living a life that is unworthy of the gospel. We're reading here a divine command to be in pursuit of a life that is worthy. And at hearing Paul hold out those categories to us, we have to do two things right away. The first thing is we have to say yes to this. A Christian posture immediately hears and agrees with God's word, agrees with his commands to us. So we say yes to this. But then the second thing we must do, and we do it in the same breath, we say yes, but then we immediately have to ask, tell me what you mean. Tell me what this looks like. Whatever it is, it's true, and I agree with it, and I want to submit to it. But I might not immediately understand what that looks like. Teach me what this looks like. And this morning, we're given one answer to that question. There will be many more here in the weeks to come as we work through chapter 2. But we're given the first one this morning. And Paul is very helpful to us. If you're a note taker, he's very helpful to you. Because this first answer he gives breaks very well into three parts. That one answer that you hear in verse 27. He says, whether I come and see you or am absent, right? live a life worthy of the gospel, that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. This is the first answer he gives to us. The description he gives of Christians living worthily is that we live in a way that is able to stand firm amid our own generation. But he speaks of this standing firm. He describes it with three different components or in three different ways. And each of them is crucial to achieving the picture that he's holding out to us here. As he says, you want to live worthily for the gospel? Live a life that is standing firm. Three elements to this that we'll consider together this morning. We can sum each of them up in a, in a single word. The first word that describes this standing firm would be the word undivided. He makes the point that standing firm is a necessarily corporate activity. It is something that God has, has given us to do together with other believers makes a lot of sense, after all, if you're thinking about this notion of citizenship that he's describing. Citizenship is lived out in a community, isn't it? I mean, it's civics. It's a civic duty within a community. Paul is addressing, and we'll continue to see this even more clearly in the weeks to come, he's addressing problems that have arisen and have revealed themselves among them as a Christian community. And notice here, firstly, how he calls them to be undivided. 
He does it in three different ways, all in verse 27. He says they are to be standing firm, how? In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. You can see it, can't you? What what the emphasis is here. This worthy conduct that he is calling us to requires a unity together with his people. Moises Silva put it this way very helpfully. He says, at the very outset here, Paul alerts us to the fundamental thesis that Christian sanctification cannot be reduced to an individualistic exercise. The struggles of the Christian citizen must be faced within the fellowship of the believing community. As he calls us to stand firm, he is calling us to a life that is, that is visibly undivided. Now, let's add to that another word. He commands us here to be able and willing to stand together. We must be undivided. But the second word we could add to that in light of what he says here would be the word unwavering. As we stand together, we must do so in a way that does not waver. Paul's description here makes clear as well that this is going to be unity not just unity in uh, a, a nebulous sort of experience, but unity in the midst of struggle. This is what we're going to experience. You don't encourage somebody to stand firm as they're strolling through the daisies on a calm spring day. That's not the condition that you call out to them and say, stand firm. You tell them to stand firm as enemies are rushing their lines or as floodwaters are raging, or hurricane winds are blowing. You hear it here in his command that they stand firm. You hear it in the phrase, striving together. We are together, yes, but we need to strive together. The the very word is assuming the existence of a struggle. The, The word is athleo. You hear where we get our word athlete from? The word is inherently wrapped up in the idea of struggle and uh, striving. There's resistance here in this idea. There's a standing firm. But he very helpfully tells us what's more. He tells us the things that we're striving toward. And we have to know that if we are to stand firm. What direction is it that is forward for me and not backwards? I have to know my bearings if I'm going to stand firm. We had an interesting experience in our family at Christmas this last year. We went with extended family to a uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not museum. Never done that before. That was interesting. And at one point, there were a series of optical illusions that you saw and read about and walked through. One of those was this tunnel. And and you, you walk through the tunnel, and you stand in the middle of it, and you look forward outside of the tunnel, but there's, there's a, uh, you're in a sphere that's spinning around you. And as you're just standing there looking, all of a sudden, it seems like up is moving steadily to the right. And, and just by virtue of what seemed to be the case, all of a sudden, you're finding it hard to stand upright. Your body is wanting to fall. Why is it wanting to fall? Well, it's because it doesn't know anymore which way it is that it's supposed to stand. You have to know what direction is what in order to stand firm. 
And if you're in a struggle and you are needing to resist, all the more this is the case. What direction am I struggling toward? And as Paul calls us not to waver, he gives us that direction at the end of verse 27. You see it there. With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What direction is this opposition pushing against? What's the struggle in reference to? This is about the claims, the promises, the hope of the gospel itself. The picture here of this struggle is one of cultural, political, social pressure to compromise the faith. The faith that Jesus Christ is Lord and that my allegiance is owed to him. The faith that I am made in God's image and thus what I do with my mind, what I do with my body matters. What I put inside of my head matters. What comes out of my mouth matters. And the standards for those things comes to us from God's revelation. The faith that there is a judgment awaiting all of mankind and that belonging to Christ is all that will matter on that day. And thus the priorities I had before Jesus saved me into his kingdom just aren't the same as the priorities that the new life has produced in me. I am being remade in Christ. And if I were of the world, the world would be, would be for me. I would be flowing with the world. The world would love me as its own. But because Christ chose me out of the world, therefore the world hates me. Jesus told us this in John 15, didn't he? So notice in putting those first two descriptions together in verse 27, this looks like a life in which we are striving together for the faith of the gospel. Waves are coming against us in exactly that way, and we are not giving way. I know I don't need to tell any of you that we live in a time in which people who claim to represent Christ fall over themselves to respond to the pressure and to the disapproval of the lost world around them by jettisoning anything that creates that conflict. There's resistance, there's push. Well, what can I get rid of to, to let the water flow? What can I get rid of to diminish the conflict here? Anything that angers the world, anything that offends the world. My friends, can you see here that that is the very description Paul is giving us of what a life unworthy of the gospel would look like? In the history of the church, there has never been any question Someone who seeks to walk after Christ, but wants to do it free of conflict with and against the present world system they're going to live in. Someone who desires that has no idea what Christ has actually called his people to. You may know the name from church history, Chrysostom. Chrysostom has been dead for a long time. He died in the year 407 AD. He wrote this, Back then, nothing is so incongruous in a Christian and foreign to his character as to seek ease and rest. He was a fairly amazing individual. He was a lawyer by trade. 
Uh, he was one of the most gifted gospel preachers of his day. Uh, and he was sent into exile after he publicly criticized the immorality, not just of the imperial court of his time, but of the clergy, the church clergy of his day. Those two things were becoming quite connected at that point, and he was sent into exile. And the way it happened was that soldiers forced him from his city in the wintertime and marched him to death. A life that is worthy of the gospel is a life that's destined for opposition in this world. And because that is inevitable, Paul is right and reasonable to describe these things in embattled terms. The need to stand firm, the need to strive together. And Paul says to them here, this is what I expect to hear of you. If the Lord grants it that I come and see you, when I come and see you, this is what I expect to find happening. If I don't get to come and I only hear a report from you, this is what I expect to hear, that this is what life is like, is like for you. You are standing firm amid opposition, and you are striving together. We hear it from Paul, and so this is how we live. Always, everywhere, as we're taking in God's word, we are conforming our minds to it. We're conforming our expectations of what life is going to be. So this is how we live. We, we measure our lives according to the measuring rod of his word. We commit to upholding and investing in and defending the institutions that God has established. In obedience to not just his commands like these, but his descriptions. His, his created norms and patterns in obedience to these things. We do such work. We honor the natural family. The rightful place of a father as the head of his home. And father and mother is integral, each in their own unique ways, to the health of children. We honor the necessity of the church as having a God-ordained presence on this earth and a commission. We live out of the conviction revealed in Scripture that every member of mankind stands in their sin as enemies of God unless they repent and turn to Christ as their Savior. In other words, our firm stand in the world comes not only in how we live, but in what we confess to the world. What we say to the world about the ultimate problems that we all face and the solutions to those problems. This is what it is for us to be ambassadors of Christ. It's just who we are. And as we live this way, we expect to face great opposition. And when we do and where we do, God's people are called upon to stand firm, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul provides one more descriptor here that we can add to these two. Undivided, unwavering, he says the life of a Christian citizen is not just a life that stands undivided and unwavering. He says one more thing. He says it is a life that is visibly undaunted as it does so. You see it in verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. What an incredible thing for him to add. The idea here. Is, is less about emotion itself 
than it is about our response to the situation. This is the only place in the New Testament that this word appears. But we know of it outside of the text of Scripture, and it's used, for example, to describe horses that have been startled into a gallop, a panicked gallop. Paul's point here, as he's describing us in this way, is to say that the Philippians must refuse to be intimidated by the opposition that they're facing, such that they refuse to panic and break. If you put that into the broader picture we've seen so far this morning, it fits very well. What is he calling them to do? What's he expecting to hear from them? That they would be standing firm, that they would be striving forward together, and that as they encounter this resistance, that they would be thoroughly unpanicked by their opponents. And notice, he says, unafraid, not frightened, in anything or in any way. That's a good reminder. There are a number of ways intimidation can come to us, can't it? We maybe think most immediately of the visible and the physical. There are physical intimidations, threats of even of violence, threats of physical loss. But there's far more than that. There's also emotional intimidation. There are efforts made to manipulate us by mischaracterizing us. There's efforts at false accusation toward things like perhaps hatred, unkindness, cruelty, things that Paul warns us we must be careful to be innocent of. And yet even if we are innocent of those things, malignment will come. Efforts to manipulate and embarrass. There may be social intimidation where this resistance brings with it a loss of status or even of social opportunity. Paul says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. And it just makes, it makes you wonder, what could account for a human being in this life living this way? What could account for a believer enduring great opposition without panicking, without deciding to resort to a plan B that would, that would divert aside? I mean, think of the Philippians here. Their opponents are causing them actual great difficulty, pain and suffering. We know that because he tells us in verse 30 that they are engaged in the same conflict that they had seen him suffer. You remember when Paul was in Philippi, he was arrested and beaten. And yet as they live lives worthy of the gospel, they are to continue steadfast and undaunted no matter the opposition. What would lead a people to endure that? And even with such conviction that they resist the sense and urge to panic as a result. What produces this kind of fearlessness? I mean, sometimes fearlessness is actually a sign of insanity, isn't it? One of the first signs that an animal has rabies is that it stops shying away in situations where it would normally do just that. I think of situations I've heard of when drug use creates a kind of insane, confident rage. When a man runs threateningly toward a police officer who's pointing his gun at him. I mean, that's a fearlessness, but it's a kind of insanity. Now, what accounts for Paul's picture of this refusal to be intimidated and to be diverted? Now, that is what the rest of this passage is answering. 
Because now that he has all three pieces of this picture put together, Paul, in several different ways, begins to explain them. He gives us the reality behind the situation that explains why this would be the way God's people would live. Why it isn't insane, but it's actually a life that is worthy of the gospel. I find it amazing how Paul is made to express this to us. He really does a couple of things. Before he starts to explain it, he simply informs us that even as God's enemies rage against us, even in the midst of it, they begin to perceive what this means. He says at the end of verse 28, this, this whole thing, Christians steady plodding forward together, experiencing opposition, but, but not being intimidated by it. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What is being revealed as the world system and its actors persecute and oppress this small seemingly insignificant group of Christ followers in Philippi, and yet find them not only refusing to give in, but actually standing united and unafraid. What's being revealed in this marks nothing less than the certain coming destruction of God's enemies and the certain coming rescue, salvation of God's people. It's a, it's a realization that comes along progressively, this dawning realization. Have you known the experience of, of that where some, a series of events happen and you begin to suddenly become aware that what's going on is nothing like you thought was going on? That is a shocking feeling. And if it's bad news for you, that dawning realization is, a, is quite a horrifying thing. Thinking about that this last week brought two different, very different illustrations to my mind. Uh, one was a, a moment in Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and Aslan is describing what the white witch has come to realize. This is in the part of the story where she has succeeded in a great goal. She's gotten over and she's stolen a, uh, a forbidden fruit that gives great power. And she is convinced that this secures victory for her. Uh, Aslan explains what's really happened. And it goes like this. He said of her, she has won her heart's desire. She has unwearying strength and endless days like a goddess. But length of days with an evil heart is only length of misery. And already she begins... <clears throat> and already she begins to know it. That makes me imagine the look on her face as the sense of triumph and victory is slowly replaced with a realization of horror. The other moment that came to my mind came from one of my favorite movies. Uh, I love the movie Cinderella Man with, uh, oh, I've lost his name now. Russell Crowe, thank you. Thank you for those whispers. Russell Crowe is the 
Bill Braddock. Bill Braddock at one point faces a massive opponent in the boxing ring named Art Lasky. Uh, and it's an intense scene. Uh, and at one point in the, uh, in the boxing match, Lasky unloads on him with everything he's got, such that Lasky is then catching his breath for a second. And that's typically the way that his fights come to an end. But not only does Braddock not go down, as he's going to pick up his mouthpiece, he looks over and he just smiles at him. And the camera pans immediately to Lasky, and his face drops completely. He realizes that was supposed to be it, and if that's not it, well, then I'm done. If that didn't do it, I've lost. See, this is what the world experiences as it opposes the work of God's Spirit at work among God's people. It finds a people who looked very defeatable, who looked very weak, and prone to being pressured and molded. But it finds a people who are living as lights in a dark world that hates that light. And as it opposes that people of that light, it finds that the description of 2 Corinthians 4 is true. It finds that they are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And you can think of how history went on in this case. This letter is written in the decades leading up to 100 AD. By 313 AD, the emperor of the entire Roman Empire is a professing Christian. And in the second century, in the midst of that, Tertullian declares famously that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Blood is being spilt, and the thing is just growing as a result. This is exactly what happened. Opposition could not stop the work that God was doing to renew a people for his own possession in this world. He could not stop the growing revelation of Christ and of his gospel. And that is encouraging for us to remember how history progressed in this way. But don't fail to notice this morning, Paul is not really speaking here predominantly to that point. He's not, he's not directly speaking here about the inevitable progress of the gospel. That's obviously entailed here. But what he is speaking of directly here is the manner of these Christians' lives amid the suffering and persecution. He's speaking of their perseverance and their fearlessness, and how that is providing the sure sign of the destruction of God's enemies. So verse 28 ends with this description of what God's enemies progressively come to realize as they oppose his people. We'll see one more thing this morning. And that's where in verse 29, Paul explains these events by speaking of how an eternal mindset informs not God's enemies, but God's people. He explains not, not just the suffering itself that they are enduring fearlessly, but he explains the confidence and the steadfastness that he's calling us to by holding out for us an eternal perspective. As you come to understand the plans of God, Paul says here, you will come to recognize that these circumstances are actually, he says, a sign of your salvation. 
Verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There is far more than we have time to talk about this morning in this verse. And for that reason, next week we'll spend a tremendous amount of time looking closely at verse 29 specifically. But this morning we notice just one element here, which is this idea that suffering for his sake is a gift that has been given to us. This is true because of the way that God's grace comes to people. It's true because God's grace comes to his people from beginning to end by means of our union with Christ. It's the only way. All the, 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 the glorious blessings come to us in Christ. The only way that God's grace comes to us is to the extent that we are united with him. Now, my friends, we simply noticed this morning that to be united to Christ is to be united to Christ, to all of Christ. You can just look at the other page of your Bible there at chapter 3, verse 10. Notice how Paul speaks of his desires there. His desire is to know him and the power of his resurrection and to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Notice the connection at the end of that verse. He desires to share in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible he may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is in, in no sense saying, I will earn my place in Christ's resurrection if I choose to suffer. It's nothing like that. He's saying, I must be united to Christ. And to be united to Christ is to be united to Christ. I'm united to him in his sufferings. I'm united to him in his resurrection. I don't get one without the other. What does it mean to be united to Christ? Incidentally, that's the whole question we're exploring in our adult Sunday school class right now. If you're not attending that, it is still not too late. I think the best messages are still maybe ahead of us. Um, it's wonderful. What Paul is saying is that if it means, if to be united to Christ means a union with him in his resurrection, it also means a union with him in his sufferings. And this is why sharing in Christ's suffering is spoken of as an inevitable aspect of being saved, of being made to be joined to Christ. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4, he says to another church, do not be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, listen to this, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You hear yet again there, he speaks of them as two absolutely inevitable 
un, unable to be disconnected from one another. That's a phrase with way too many negatives in it. They cannot be separated. We'll look at those texts and many more next week and more closely. But the point that we hear from Paul this morning is that suffering for Christ should encourage us. And we can stand strong and determined in the midst of it. And it is indeed a gift to us, as he's put it here, because in it, we are experiencing what the Bible says people experience who are being prepared to share in the eternal blessings of Christ's resurrection. Or as Paul puts it here in verse 28, this is a sign of God's salvation for you. Now maybe this is a bit of a cliffhanger for us because bringing this up causes a number of important questions, important questions to start rolling around in our heads. Is this suffering only the suffering of persecution for Christ or is all our suffering as Christians in view here? And if so, how? Is the suffering purely representative of a future glory and blessing? Or is God saying he's doing something with it now in this life? There's a number of such questions. We'll continue to think on these things together next Sunday. But I would have us close this morning by holding the picture out again before our eyes that Paul has just painted here for us by painting it for the Philippians. What does it look like when we live lives worthy of the gospel of our Lord? And his answer for us up to this point has been that God's people are seen to live for the faith of the gospel. They love it. They love the gospel. They love how it understands them and exposes them. They love its precious promises. They love the hope that it only can be found to offer. They love it. And so they stand upon it, and they stand firm when it is opposed. Not only that, but they strive forward together, arm in arm, in such a life. And not only that, but they do not respond to the world's intimidation with fear. They are not afraid of this opposition. Because they know that what John told us in his first epistle is true. They know that the world, the darkness around us, is passing away. And the true light is already shining. They know that this present world is passing away along with its desires. But that the one who does the will of God, that one lives forever. And so they stand with unopposable confidence and peace and joy as they strive together through many toils and tribulations because they know their destination is sure. Because it's the power of Christ himself that upholds them in this battle. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we trust your word more than we trust our own senses. We trust your word more than we trust our own eyes. We pray, Father, that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit to be faithful in the roles and responsibilities you have put before us in this life. 
And even as we pray for things like that, we join our hopes and our prayers to those that Paul has expressed this morning. Father, work in us by your Spirit, so that by your transforming power in us, we would live lives worthy of the gospel of your beloved Son. That as you look upon us, you would see us standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by those who are in reality haters of you, you who are unstoppable, you who are glorious, and you who tether and secure us to the end. Teach us what it means in our time and in our spheres to be faithful. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.